Hello and welcome to the first edition of our bi-weekly Think Africa Press podcast, bringing you in-depth discussion, fascinating features and greater context and analysis to standard news coverage on the African continent. Here in the studio today is Editor-in-Chief James Schneider, Senior Editor James Wan and I'll be your host Sam Peranti. Within this week's podcast we will be discussing the dangers of oversimplistic narratives in South Sudan and the Central African Republic, African traders and visas in Guangzhou, China, and the current state of Boko Haram in Nigeria. To begin the podcast, senior editor James Wan takes a look at the current coverage of South Sudan and the Central African Republic and asks whether we need to look a little deeper. Thanks, Sam. African news doesn't make international headlines very often, but when it does, it tends to be focused on one of two things, humanitarian crisis such as a famine or war. And in the past few months, it's been the latter, specifically in the Central African Republic and in South Sudan, that's garnered global attention. Now, that attention, broadly speaking, is a good thing. It would be much worse if the media just ignored what was going on. But maybe partly because most news organisations don't tend to look at Africa all that often, and so don't really have the in-depth knowledge they may have on other issues, that when Africa is suddenly thrust upon the front pages, the media's understanding of the underlying context may be a little shallow and the framing a little simplistic. Furthermore, as one arguably slightly out of its depth news organisation copies how its rival covered a story, and then another copies both of them in a kind of mutually reinforcing cycle, the way in which an issue is presented can quickly become crystallised, with all subsequent events being interpreted through that same lens. We can see this happening very clearly in coverage of the Central African Republic, where almost everything seems to be presented through the prism of Muslim versus Christian, and also in South Sudan, though to a lesser extent, where the violence has sometimes been simplistically presented as deriving from deep tribal enmities. In this first segment, we'll be questioning those accounts and discussing the dangers of overly simplistic narratives. But firstly, I heard briefly from two people all too familiar with simplified coverage. Firstly, I spoke to Charles Okwir, a communications officer who works for an international development agency in South Sudan. The current uh, unrest has not been or was never really about um, the Dinkas fighting the Newers. This was essentially a political dispute between, actually not even between, it was a political dispute within the ruling SPLM. That is where the issue started from. It would have helped more uh, a story of that nature, in my opinion, would have been better told by South Sudanese journalists who do understand the actual structural issues that caused this problem. Uh, next, we heard from Tendai Marima, a journalist and researcher who writes on the Central African Republic. This is what she had to say. There's been a problem with, um, I guess, a flattening of narratives uh, where you see, for example, um, certain certain reports, news reports, then portraying this as a Christian versus Muslim war. Um, but, I mean, essentially, it is not it is not a religious conflict. Um, and I think at the heart of it is a political crisis, and it's a political struggle uh, for control of CAR. I think the misunderstanding essentially comes from 
<laughs> from from wanting to from wanting from wanting to, to 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 package this in a very neat and easy way, you know. But the thing is, this is not a neat and easy an easily understandable situation. It, it, it's not, you know. And I think it's essentially because um, the media hasn't been paying attention all along. So obviously, when it comes to the stage that you know the fighting is so intense and so blown up, they are only going to see the first things that they see. You know, if it's if it looks like a mindless Christian versus Muslims battle, and it sounds easy to tell it that way because we haven't been paying attention all along, then that is what we're going to do. Uh, so back in the studio with James Schneider now. Um, as we heard from Charles and Tendai there, many of the narratives of the of the two conflicts have been simplistic, if if not even false, and certainly misleading at times. Um, and my, I suppose my question to you is, you know, where does the problem lie? Is it a question of who are we getting shadow reporting because we're listening to um, foreigners' accounts when we should really be listening to local reporters who kind of intimately understand the dynamics? Um, or is it not really a question of who should be telling the story, but how journalists, wherever they're from, um, how they should be researching and, and interrogating a situation? I think it's both things, and you can't really have one without the other. We definitely need to have uh, many, many more um, African journalists telling the stories from where they're, where they're from, and that in itself will improve coverage. But I don't think um, that alone will fix things. I think how subjects are approached is very important. I think... Um, journalists should have a more of a sort of anthropological lens when they're looking at um when they're when they're looking at issues that they should be trying to work out how things make sense rather than presenting it as some uh sort of natural outpouring of something that they wouldn't see in their own societies um and then i also think it's a it's a question of um uh how editors function as well i mean your journalists can be doing the best job in the world but if uh, their work isn't being published or if it's being given a crass headline then um then that undermines the good work but i think maybe this might be getting a little bit better um well that brings me nicely on to my next point which is kind of yeah how how these things are changing um and i and i spoke to chika Ezianya, an author based in rwanda about that and this is what she said it is not surprising at all that when um, someone does not understand something, it, it's very easy for the person to give it an interpretation that fits his own uh, stereotype, perspective, or, 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 or way of seeing things. So that has been the, 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 the challenge that Africa um, was facing. Because I say was, because right now, for the fact that this conversation is coming up right now, it's becoming a global uh, discourse, a lot of... Africans and non-Africans are beginning to challenge this narrative, this negative stereotype of Africa and this simplistic interpretation of, of, of African uh, conflict as being either tribal, mostly, or religious, as, as not just being correct. But th this conversation is, is now gaining ground, and it is very, 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 very good and very important. And the fact that it is gaining ground means that it, it's, it is changing, and Africans have a, a very... Uh, strong role to play by continuously not just critiquing it is one thing to criticize but africans should put the information put the right information out there create blogs and talk and leave comments you know on when you find something that is not right so africans will have to really really up the ante be the ones to go out and just keep saying that this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong and over time it will change uh it, it will definitely change there is no question about that it's changing already um, so Chika was cautiously optimistic there, James. Do you do you share her viewpoint? 
Yeah, without saying that things are already excellent or are necessarily going to get hugely better, the kind of conditions to make things better are definitely there. I mean, firstly, people you know, covering stories, they've got way more information available to them really, really easily. And they've kind of got a pool of people that they can tap into quite quickly who can give them a much better, you know, much better idea of a given situation than just being able to, you know, consult one old battered book. Um and I kind of think that that's where we, as in Think Africa Press, fit into this, that we can provide a bit more nuance and a bit more analysis and a bit more context, which then other journalists can pick up and uh, and use. And I think what Chika was saying that's really important is how journalists and editors can be and must be held to account. And when things are wrong, they should be told they're wrong and told how they're wrong. And as much as possible that we should use kind of new technologies available to to correct false narratives whenever we find them. Um, if you want to learn more about the Central African Republic or South Sudan, hopefully framed in, in kind of a more critical and accurate manner, um, or if you want to read more articles on um, narratives of Africa and what Adichie calls dangers of a single story, um, we'll link to some relevant articles on this podcast show page. From South Sudan and the Central African Republic to China now, where we take a look at African traders living in Guangzhou. Guangzhou has always been a major trading hub, but it wasn't until the mid-1990s that many Africans moved to the city. Previously, trade between the African continent and Guangzhou was conducted via middlemen in Dubai. However, after the crash of the Asian Tigers, many African entrepreneurs bypassed those middlemen and went directly to Guangzhou. Over the past decade, increased levels of trade and waves of Chinese traders arriving on the African continent have led to many more African traders seeking their fortune in China. Many traders reside there legally and have settled with families, but there is also a large population of traders who don't have valid visas. I visited Guangzhou to investigate further. In the Sanyuan Li area of Guangzhou, close to a number of African markets, over 1,000 police dressed in light blue and grey uniforms launched a counter-narcotics raid on the Dragon Hotel. For months, police had been observing the movements of many they believed to be at the centre of the drug trafficking trade. And the reports from the local authorities here in Guangzhou suggest that the operation was highly successful, discovering significant quantities of methamphetamine, heroin, cash and weapons. Two hours after the raid began, I arrived to watch the police escort over a hundred men out of the building, all handcuffed, all exhausted and all African, many of them Nigerian. The Nigerian diaspora is the largest African diaspora in Guangzhou and the majority of Nigerians are successful law-abiding businessmen and women. However, Nigerians also tend to grab most of the negative headlines concerning Africans in China. Back in 2009, the Nigerian ambassador to China claimed that of all the crimes committed by Africans here, Nigerians commit about 90%. The incident at the Dragon Hotel is not out of the ordinary. Nigerians have died fleeing Chinese immigration police, been arrested for drug smuggling and been involved in previous raids in the city. Many Nigerians are still locked away in Chinese prisons. And on the streets of Guangzhou, I asked members of the local Chinese trading community what they thought of the African diaspora in the city. I think that people who come from Nigeria to China bring a few positive things with them. 
The first is that they bring business. The second is that as a people they have a happy mentality. They have happy lifestyles. If you have a problem with them, once it has been resolved, they act as if nothing bad happened, which is very unlike us Chinese. As a country, Nigerians are a bit poorer. When they get here, they like to get rich in one day. They start adventuring into drug smuggling and drug trafficking. Some Nigerians even store drugs in their girlfriends' stomachs and bring them into China. This is very dangerous and bad. The third point, when many are here and get a Chinese girlfriend, they have a child and run home. My fourth point is that a lot of the time their visas have expired and they don't extend them, which means that our system gets a bit chaotic and so the government is worried. Some people, they don't like, you know, they're just doing this uh, clothes business, normal business, you know, but some people, they like risk, maybe like uh, drugs, yeah, and uh, stealing, yeah. Nigerians who come to Guangzhou, there is a good and a bad side. They contribute to the economy and they set up businesses. The bad side is that they don't really follow hygiene. They break the law and they have no visas. Some of them, for example, come here to sell drugs, sell cocaine, and the police are not enforcing the law. There are a lot of Africans. There are too many. I feel like they are taking over, occupying the city. There are indeed many Nigerians living in Guangzhou without valid visas. And in order to find out why, I visited Jigang Li, an academic at Sun Yat-sen University who believes that the reason for the large population of Nigerians without visas stems from a flaw in China's visa system. For a Nigerian, uh, he or she can easily, relatively easily get apply for the visa in Africa uh, and then the application goes through the foreign ministry system uh, in Beijing which actually relatively have no connection with Guangzhou. Then you get your visa and come to China, come to Guangzhou. When you apply for your extension, you face the problem because now it's a local government who control the extension. Then you face a problem because as we can see in last years, normally they may reject uh, Nigerian application of the extension, visa extension, then you become overstay, illegal migrants, etc. There is also mismatch between the uh, central government in Beijing and uh, the local government in Guangzhou. For, for Beijing-China-Africa relation is very much important uh, as we can see in the economic relations, the raw materials from Africa's uh, the Chinese high-level officials are very concerned with uh, African countries. Their, uh, their opportunities and even we can see the future of China is somehow depends on such kind of a relation. But for local government, for Guangzhou municipal officials, they face very practical issues like uh, the registration, management, uh, uh, inspection, etc.
As a result of this lack of coordination between the central government in Beijing and the local authorities in Guangzhou, many overstayers are in a catch-22 situation. They cannot afford to pay the fine and then the air ticket to go home and now their visas have expired and cannot go to immigration for fear of being detained. Some then either have to buy a fake passport of another African country or try and go through an agent where they risk losing thousands of dollars and not even receiving a valid visa. On a particularly windy day, away from the centre of the city and the gaze of the immigration authorities, I came to a secure location to talk to a group of young, entrepreneurial Nigerians who don't have valid visas. Having all worked through the night, they are all exhausted but feel that it's important that they have their say. I arrived in China here in 2008 and when I first arrived, I, I'm bullied and I, I hope, uh, you know, with a good intention of coming to China, a lot of things will happen. I have a bright future of doing business and, you know, legitimate business to my, back to my country. But uh, when I got to China, I tried extending my visa. You know, I moved to, they tried to give me some people, with the, they say they direct me to the agents and I, I paid a lot of money for me to have a valid visa, but uh, at the end of it, they, I, I, I paid 9,500 uh, RMB then, but I could not get a valid visa. What they gave me was uh, a fake one, and on the, when I, I didn't even know that I have a fake face, visa until the day, police caught me on the street. And what happened? You know, on, on that day, I, I, they caught me and they demanded for the visa. I gave them with confidence I have a, a valid visa, but in the process, they found out it is not a, a value, and I don't want to go back. I have to run because I, I found out that maybe I don't know. It's a valid, it's, it's an invalid visa they gave to me. So you ran away from yeah, the police? Yeah, I ran away from the police because there's nothing I could, could do. So, what's an ordinary day like for you without a visa? Of course, a, a day for, for you as a, as a non legitimate uh, resident in China, if you don't have visa, is like uh, you know, coming out sometimes, most of the times at night time. You know, that's why you only see blast, they move out at night. They don't have visas, you know. You just move out where they cannot be molested or maybe don't be harassed. Because you also just like to look look to time. You don't just move out anytime, you just look at time and sometimes towards night you move out. So it's always boring at daytime, doing nothing. Anyone else? Sometimes maybe you wake up in the morning, you want to go for your business and you receive a call that these people that are where you're going. You'll be frustrated for the whole day, you won't go out again, you start home. I mean, you want to go to maybe Canal to buy some goods for the day. And a friend of you called you and said that this, the, the immigration are working at Canal. The whole day is, is gone. You stay at home and waiting for the next day to come out. It's not very, if they can extend our visa, you can go out anytime and do your business. And secondly, the issue is not where you can go and where you cannot go, because everywhere, they're everywhere. Especially they go on Mufti. When you see somebody talk, it's another Chinese. By the time you know it, they grab you. They start beating you. Before you know it, they bring you to down. You know, disgrace you and the Chinese will be taking picture of you. Making shame, posting it in the Facebook, you know, all these things. And, and what kind of things what kind of things do they do? What kind of things do they say? The way they cannot ask you anything, what they will do is to force you on the ground, beating you, molesting you, hitting you all the way around, like ten men on you. You cannot be able to express it, even if you have any passport already, or to say that you don't have any visa. Sometimes they see us as a, there's one particular name they call us, Hegwe. That means a black devil. We are human beings. It's not about, you know, uh, holding the person or catching the person. It's the, the, the insult. 
the humiliation, the attack. Sometimes they will injure you. At the end, they won't take you to the hospital. How do you earn a living? How do you trade? We have a lot of things to do to export to Africa. China produces a lot of things. But now, we foreigners are afraid to trade because we don't have valid visas. We, we help them in advertising their goods. And the world knows that they, now they hold the economies in a way. But why are they maltreating us? Why can't they grant us a, stay, a visa extension? Without the valid visa documents, it becomes very difficult to work through official channels. Many factories or shipping agents may reject the business posed to them if visas are not in order. Most Nigerians without visas earn a living working honestly. However, like many that were arrested in the Dragon Hotel, some without visas may turn to crime in order to sustain themselves and earn a living in the city when official legal channels are closed off to them. I travelled to an office in the heart of an industrial estate on the outskirts of Guangzhou to meet Adruku Emma, chairman of the African and Nigerian Community Organisations. A successful businessman with an ego to match, Mr Emma sits in front of framed pictures of Good Luck Jonathan and Xi Jinping. He outlined the effects that not extending Nigerian visas could have on the local Chinese community. So they are not coming here to commit crime, but if you cannot allow them to do the legitimate business, that will make them to be idle. What I know about Nigerians is that you cannot put Nigerians in pocket. They cannot, they don't like stay idle. They must find something to do. That is why they look stubborn. But for the visa issue, it's also affecting the system of Chinese. Because if you give these people visa, then you will know all about what they are doing, their movement. It's also to help your security system. But if you don't give them visa, you don't know about them. You don't know what they are doing. And it's damaging your security system, okay, to control this country. It's a very big something. But for them to allow visa to bring this country down, they will not rise again. They will find it difficult to rise again. Because now some of their items, some countries are picking up now. Like Indian, when you talk of mobile accessories now, they are picking up because of the China currency. Some of the Africans are traveling to Indian for phone accessories now. But before China picked this. Why? Because people see now they cannot get visa to China. They're now looking for other countries. Where else? India and... Indian. Then also Vietnam for textiles. So this is how country is going down. And once the trade move out of China, <laughs> China will have big problem in their economy. And now from Nigerians in China, we'll be looking at the security situation in Nigeria. Specifically, we're going to be taking a closer look at Islamist militant group Boko Haram. I'm fortunate to be joined in the studio by three experts on the group. We've got Raffaello Pantushi, Senior Research Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, Bala Lehman, 
PhD candidate at uh, at the School of Oriental and African Studies, and Virginia Kamoli, Research Associate for Transnational Threats at the in- uh, International Institute of Strategic Studies. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, we're going to give uh, an overview of Boko Haram in this uh, portion, which will be for around 10 minutes, and then we'll carry on a more detailed discussion in a further po- podcast, which will be available alongside this one. So, Raffaello, can you kick us off by giving us a bit of a t- brief timeline on Boko Haram, how it came about and how it's developed? So, I mean, Boko Haram, as we know it and see it today, in some ways first emerged in 2009 after their leader, uh, Mohamed Yusuf, was killed uh, by uh, Nigerian authorities. Um, however, the group itself seems to have existed for some time before this. Uh, various Nigerian government sources claim that the sect comes as far back as 1995, while others say that it really flourished uh, more after 2002. Um, however, it's really in 2009 that we start to see the group uh, really become what we saw today, and this was after the death of its leader. About a year after its leader died or its leader was killed in, in Nigerian government custody. It seems to have erupted into a sort of a spate of violence across uh, the country, um, which has included uh, suicide attacks and reports of links to other Al-Qaeda groups around Africa. Um, it has continued to evolve until uh, today, um, where we've seen... Uh, Factions and sects seem to sort of divide off from it, in particular a group called Ansaru, which first really emerged in I think it was about 2012 um, and seems to have been a group which some have identified as maybe being closer to some of the Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb elements who sort of came down um, and they have sort of in they seem to be talking with a greater globalist rhetoric and seem to be talking more, uh, adopting more of a posture which is more reminiscent of sort of Al-Qaeda than Boko Haram, which has seemed sort of up until that moment a much more localized movement. Um, Bala, uh, so it's been, um, as uh, Raffaello says, more of a localized movement, Boko Haram, and it's been sort of intimately related with how the government has responded to us. We've you know, heard it really... had its violent turn after the 2009 crackdown on on the group. Could you um, just give us a bit more information about this and give us your take? Uh, Well, like Raphael said, um, the the group actually became more uh, violent and and started attacking certain um, parts of the country after the death of its leader in 2009 um, in uh, police custody. And and, uh, I think it's just sort of confirmed to the group that the government was actually against them. Mm. And what they did now was start to attack police stations and banks, probably for funding, and and that sort of escalated the, the level of violence that the group um, was carrying out. Um, and this hasn't changed, even um, as government has tried to clamp down on them. Uh, government um, um, in, increased its security funding um, under the last National Security Advisor, but this, this, this didn't work. And then they came up with a joint task force in, in Meduguri that was supposed to try and restrict the activities of the group. But this has only managed to push them uh, further underground. And we still see attacks that are going on. Uh, last week, there was an attack in a village in um, mm. in, in Borno State. And so the group hasn't really um, stopped. And I think they're trying to counter the government's actions by reacting um, in the same way. What sort of effect is the the joint task force operating in the in the northeast of the country what sort of effect has that had on the group well initially uh, well on the group um it seems the group has gone further on the ground but initially the government um claimed that they had some success and they claimed that they had killed Abu Shiko and which we found out later to be untrue and um, the group's leader yeah, yeah the group's okay. leader and um um right now the JTF has been disbanded in the way it was set up initially um 
but they're still attacks. I don't think it has really affected them negatively because even I think a couple of months ago they attacked a, an Air Force base in Medjugorje. Mm-hmm. So things haven't really changed. Um, we just have seen a slight lull in the activities. Uh, we just have to wait to see how exactly they react. Um, good luck, Jonathan's recently um, had a big reshuffle in his military and he's uh, changed all of the kind of top brass. And some people are linking that to um, the success or not success of the fight against Boko Haram, but others are saying it's got really nothing to do with it. But do you think um, that, 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 that we'll see a new military strategy in 2014 and how Boko Haram is, is dealt with by the Nigerian forces will change? I think the disbanding of the JTF probably is a new strategy that they have. Uh, maybe that was because of a lack of success, total success in what they hope to achieve. But I understand that the president has given a um, a date. He expects that Boko Haram should be wiped out by April 2014, yes. he said. Mm-hmm. And so we're still, I mean, we're still yeah. hoping or we're still yeah. waiting to see if that is possible because, I mean, he's given a lot of deadlines for other things, um, including Boko Haram before, and that hasn't worked out. So I doubt if this will work out anyway. Yeah. Um, Virginia, what uh, the Nigerian government and security forces have got some kind of help from the outside world uh, in dealing with Boko Haram, partly because of the you know the killings and the and the domestic security threat, but also in part because of fears about becoming more transnational. Can you speak about how you know who's helping and how, and and whether we should really be thinking about it in this transnational sense or a much more regional one? Sure. I think if we look at international partners, the key ones for Nigeria are the United States and the United Kingdom. If you look at the U.S., well, Nigeria is the second largest recipient of uh, bilateral U.S. development aid. And it has been uh, the two countries have been working together for a number of years. In particular, the Pentagon works with the Nigerian military to um, uh, provide training and non-professionalism as part of a broader package that includes uh, counterterrorism, maritime security in the of Guinea and many other uh, aspects. The State Department as well also engaged with, uh, with, with Nigeria, providing peacekeeping support, uh, training, border security, and so on and so forth. Um, there has been a pretty vocal um, section of the uh, U- uh, US administration asking for uh, Boko Haram to be uh, proscribed. Uh, at first, uh, in June uh, 2012, uh, the United States designated uh, Boko Haram's leader, Abubakar Shekau, uh, Khalid Al-Bernawi, um, Ansaru's um, alleged uh, leader, and another key figure, Adam uh, Kambar, as specially uh, designated global terrorist. And it was only in November 2013 that uh, the U.S. administration proscribed the um, the whole group and also placed a very high bounty, seven million dollars, if I recall correctly, on the uh, on Shikau's, um head. Um, this is very uh, important, but I think probably the country uh, outside the continent with the strongest links with uh, with Nigeria is the United Kingdom because of obvious uh, historical, cultural, and economic. Um, uh, ties. Um, the two countries have been involved in lots of uh, exchanges. Uh, Nigerian officers come to the UK to, to receive uh, training, and the UK has been cooperating with Nigeria for a long time, again, on training of peacekeeping um, and so on. And I think it, most importantly, in January 2012, the United Kingdom government uh, pledged to really help Nigeria implement a, a broader, more comprehensive security um, strategy. I think the voices 
Well, the argument for the proscription of uh, Boko Haram hasn't been as uh, loud in, in the UK as it was in the US. Um, it, the, the proscription eventually came. This was um, this was in, in, in 2013, just a month after the Nigerian government had prescribed both uh, Boko Haram and his offshoot Ansaru. I don't think this should be uh, interpreted as the United Kingdom uh, saying or expecting Boko Haram to pose a direct threat to the UK, but rather this was a diplomatic move to show uh, Nigeria and the world that the UK was behind the um, the Nigerian effort. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for in this conversation in this podcast, but please join Raffaello, Bala, Virginia and myself for an extended discussion on Boko Haram, available on our website, thinkafricapress.com, on iTunes and also on SoundCloud. This episode of the Think Africa Press podcast was recorded at SOAS Studios in London on the 23rd of January 2013. It was written and presented by James Schneider, James Wan and Sam Paranti and was produced by Sam Paranti and James Bullock. You can find our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. And for more from Think Africa Press, please visit thinkafricapress.com, follow us on Twitter on at Think Africa Feed, and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash thinkafricapress.